I'm in front of the Lyric Theater at 213 West 42nd Street between Broadway and 8th Avenue. And here in a few weeks, it will reopen and resume its run of the Broadway smash Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. But this was not always where one brought the whole family for a night of wholesome entertainment. Once upon a time, this was where guys like Travis Bickle brought their dates. You gotta be kidding. What? This is a dirty movie. No, no, this, this, is, the, this is a movie that uh, a lot of couples come to. All kinds of couples go here. You sure about that? Yeah. Yeah, I see them all the time. In its former life, the Lyric Theater was one of several porno theaters and grindhouses that lined this block of 42nd, then known as the Deuce. And there are a lot of ways to explain how this area has shifted over the past 40 or 50 years, but none gets to the point faster than the fact that the theater where Travis Bickle and Betsy saw Sometime Sweet Susan is now where you go to see the Harry Potter play. In those years, Times Square became much more than a stretch of real estate. It was, for many, a symbol of all that was wrong with New York City, all that was sketchy and sleazy and dangerous and transgressive. But the way those problems were addressed via rezoning and gentrification became a symbol of what was wrong with the city's current iteration, how it became slick, soulless, and suburban. So today we're going to look at that tension between those warring ideas of what Times Square is and what it should be, of what it is now and what it was then, as captured in two of the greatest of all New York movies, Midnight Cowboy and Taxi Driver. And joining us on this journey, we have Midnight Cowboy cinematographer Adam Hollander. My English was really minimal. We have film critic and historian Glenn Kenny. That's a tough film. We have historian and author Kim Phillips Fine. It's really just a question of brain cells or something. And we have taxi driver director Martin Scorsese. When do you need this thing? I'm Jason Bailey. And this is Fun City Cinema, a podcast about New York and the movies that made it. Driver 48th and 6th, please. So I think you take the 7th Avenue subway. I bet you can't even find the subway. Hey, you guys, the train's right over there. How does it feel to be back in the war zone? In New York City. New York. New York. Right. This city here is like an open sewer, you know? It's full of filth and scum. Go ahead. Get the money. Fun City Cinema. By Jason Bailey and Mike Hull. Where are you going? I'm heading on up New York City, ma'am. Where you been, 42nd Street? <laughs> That's where you been. Get along, little doggies, or you know New York will be your new home. Well, now let's get down to business. Mr. Allen is to plan the itinerary, and so he has to know what each member of the family wants to see in New York. Mary has some pretty definite ideas, and to her, as to many people, New York is Times Square, the crossroads of the world, the great white way, bright lights, the theater, good food, and dancing to the music of the world's most famous orchestras. 
That's a clip from This Is New York, a 1946 educational film about a fictional family taking their first trip to the Big Apple. And in case it's not clear from the clip, that is the first place this family wants to go. Times Square, the crossroads of the world. So you can see that as far back as the 1940s, Times Square was pitched to outsiders the same way it is today, as a tourist destination. But that family-friendly image was always at least somewhat at odds with the reality on the ground. At the turn of the century, 42nd Street was an extension of the tawdry district known as the Tenderloin, which was full of dance halls, boarding houses, and brothels. Times Square only became a city center when the new subway station opened there in 1904, converging several lines in the neighborhood. There were Broadway theaters to class the area up, but there were bawdier and earthier entertainments as well. The leering girly shows of Florence Ziegfeld and Earl Carroll, hot dog and hamburger shops and lunch counters, dime museums, flea circuses, and penny arcades, and the booze-fueled pleasures of cabarets, lobster restaurants, nightclubs, saloons, and speakeasies. These were the pleasures that brought visiting soldiers and sailors to Times Square on their brief New York stopovers during World War II. They also brought the beatniks and hipsters of the 1950s and early 1960s, which was dramatized in works as divergent as Jack Kerouac's 1950 novel The Town and the City and Blake Edwards' 1961 movie Breakfast at Tiffany's, which includes a scene of its protagonists blowing off steam by scoping out the burlesque shows. Gracious! Do you think she's handsomely paid? Oh, indeed. But these were the surface pleasures. Everyone knew that Times Square was where one went for sex, both from a distance and up close. In his history, The Devil's Playground, James Traub writes, In 1901, vice investigators identified 132 sites where prostitutes plied their trade in the area bound by 6th and 8th Avenues and 37th and 47th Street. 43rd Street between Broadway and 8th, where the New York Times was to move its office, was known as Soubrette Row, for most of the brownstones on the block functioned as brothels. End quote. And as the years passed, nothing, not prohibition, not wars, not police profiling, slowed down the Times Square sex trade. In 1950, the opening of the Port Authority bus terminal increased the supply of bright-eyed new sex workers of both sexes. By the beginning of the following decade, this fulcrum of vice and sin had made it to the front page of the New York Times. Reporter Milton Bracker wrote, on March 14, 1940, 42nd Street between 7th and 8th Avenues is an enigma to New Yorkers concerned with the deterioration of the midway of Manhattan. Virtually everyone interested in the face the city turns to hundreds and thousands of tourists annually is uneasy about the situation. Much criticism is directed at the 10 motion picture theaters between 7th and 8th Avenues. Their combined capacity is 10,104, and because they are open from 8 a.m. to 4 a.m., they are known as grind joints. Some of these theaters emphasize sex and violence in their street displays, and it is suggested that these displays tend to attract undesirables, especially in the late hours. Many contend that a woman alone is not safe in such a movie, that male perverts use them as a place to meet and misbehave, and that the general atmosphere of the theaters breeds crime. Brecker also pinpointed the proliferation of arcades and dirty bookstores, the jukeboxes that were attracting, quote, youths of various races, end quote, 
and the drifters loitering on the sidewalks, at the bus station, and in the all-night cafeterias. And that wasn't all. Homosexuality is an obvious problem on 42nd Street. The area had long been gay-friendly, thanks to both its anything-goes atmosphere and its proximity to the theater district. Male hustlers had worked alongside their female counterparts for decades. Historian Timothy Guilfoyle found an early 30s tabloid paper claiming, quote, the latest gag about 2 a.m. is to have your picture taken with one or two pansies on Times Square, end quote. Two important novels captured this scene in the early 1960s. John Rachie's City of Night was published in 1963. Two years later, James Leo Herlihy published his story of Joe Buck, a handsome fellow from Texas who boards a bus for the city where he plans to sleep with rich New York women for money. Herlihy gave his book a title that conjured up both desperation and tradition, neon and Americana. He called it Midnight Cowboy. People stop and stare. 77 Radio in New York. This is Ron Lundy Love. This is WABC. And now, that's New York talking there, man. Joe Buck comes to New York City on a Greyhound bus, all but rubbing his hands in anticipation of all the money and sex he'll find there. When he arrives, he rents a skeezy room in a dumpy hotel overlooking 42nd Street. We're never told explicitly why he goes there, so we have to assume it's the same reason everyone does, because it's the center of everything. And when Joe's plan to collect the riches of unhappy city women proves unsurprisingly flawed, he's reduced to sleeping in grindhouses and cruising under their marquees. But you're gonna have to give me that money like you say it. I was lying. I don't have it. What are you going to do to me? You ain't got no $25 on you? No. What are you going to do to me? What the hell do you think I'm going to do? Who do you want me to do with you, boys? You want me to beat on you? No, no, no. How much you got in your pockets? Nothing. You're going to empty your pockets out right over there. Right over there. Joe Buck's desperation was not uncommon in the New York of the 1960s. Midnight Cowboy was published in 1965, when John Lindsay was running for his first term. John Schlesinger's film adaptation was released in 1969, when Lindsay was running for his second. Over the course of the 1960s, the city starts to experience some of the problems that kind of snowball in the 70s. This is Kim Phillips Fine, historian and author of the terrific book Fierce City, New York's Fiscal Crisis and the Rise of Austerity Politics. Unemployment is starting to rise. There starts to be a lot of concern about corporate headquarters leaving the city. Deindustrialization is at that point well underway. And the, the kind of the mass prosperity of the city, which had been a feature of the early post-war years, is starting to be called into question. There's a lot more awareness of poverty in the city. You're starting to see the, the migration out of the city of middle-class white residents, and it's becoming much more of a black and brown city than it had been earlier in the 20th century. And I think this is associated in the public mind with you know a, a sense of anxiety about the city's future. 
Joe Buck discovers he needs some kind of a tour guide to help him make his way through the unforgiving city. Hey, you really know the ropes. Oh, damn, I wish I bumped into you before, huh? I'm Joe Buck from Texas. Enrico Rizzo from the Bronx. And I'm gonna buy you a drink. What the hell do you think of that? Well, I don't mind if I do. And the character of Joe Buck had a couple of real-life counterparts on the set of Midnight Cowboy. We were fresh and eager and observant. That's Adam Hollander. He was the cinematographer of Midnight Cowboy. It was his first feature film credit in that role. I came to New York as a tourist, really, not knowing if I'm going to live in the United States, Canada, Britain, or continental Europe. I came from Poland, and uh, I didn't want to go back to Poland for obvious reasons, communist regime and pleasant lives. I arrived to New York on a Greyhound bus. In fact, the image as Joe Buck comes from New Jersey was exactly the way I saw New York. And I showed it to Schlesinger and we ended up incorporating it in the film. And I pretty much fell in love with New York and decided to make it my home. And I don't regret that decision. Director John Schlesinger was seeing the city through a newcomer's eyes as well. He was born in Hampstead, London. Midnight Cowboy was the first film that he shot in America. And that perspective greatly informed their approach to the material. Both of us were new, new to New York. Schlesinger came from England, I came from Poland. Schlesinger came from documentary background, doing a lot of BBC. And both of us approached it in a very realistic form. and. We ended up spending enormous amount of time walking the streets of New York and seeing what was new to us and possibly not new to somebody who lived in the city, who used to. And we decided to do whatever we could to make it ultra real and uh, make it a challenge. So in contrast to a native New Yorker like Sidney Lumet or Martin Scorsese, Schlesinger saw things as strange that a local might take for granted. During pre-production, he watched in amazement as a man lay on the sidewalk in front of the luxury department store Bonwit Teller. He was asleep or comatose or perhaps even dead, but the passing pedestrian simply stepped around him. Schlesinger put that in the picture, moving the scene to the sidewalk in front of Tiffany and company. And in that spirit, the filmmakers wanted to shoot their characters on the streets, among real New Yorkers, so they could get accurate snapshots of city life, like this. Don't worry about that. Actually, that ain't a bad way to pick up insurance, you know. I shot a lot of tests, and during those days, we decided on long lenses and and what helped enormously was that both actors were totally unknown, Hoffman and uh, Voigt. So you could put them on the other side of the street among pedestrians shopping on Fifth Avenue and 
on top of it, void stole. And with this cowboy hat, you can put him anywhere. And he always stood up uh, in the crowd. And we utilized it. To stage more complicated scenes, they had to get a bit more creative. Uh, we tried everything. First of all, uh, we tried to shoot with available light in order not to attract a- attention to ourselves. And that created all kinds of technical difficulties. The films were very slow in those days. So a lot of um, gimmickry had to go into it, uh, forcing the development, uh, finding special lenses, hiding the camera. At one point I had idea which only partially worked to build a Trojan horse by creating a huge wooden box really with the little openings and uh, having a truck deliver it on the street on 42nd Street on the sidewalk. And inside was a camera mounted on a tripod with a camera operator and assistant. And we had it all planned how to do it, except Schlesinger was so anxious, wanted to talk to the camera operator. So I kept running to this box saying, did you get it? Did you? Well, after a while, people people started responding and our cover was blown. But there was no arguing with the end result. From opening day, Lines for Midnight Cowboy stretched for blocks, and it wound up grossing $44.8 million in its initial theatrical run, $307 million when adjusted for inflation. It got seven Academy Award nominations and one for Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Picture, the first and last X-rated movie to win the big prize. Not long before the movie's big win at the Oscars, the Times printed another piece on the state of Times Square, something of a decade-concluding bookend to that 1960 article. The paper dubbed Times Square cesspool of the world, a phrase borrowed from a plainclothes police inspector who added, the dregs of the whole country drain into our sump. The city's tourism board could boost its historic sites, its Broadway shows, and its unmatched museums. But that image, the cesspool of the world, was increasingly what people thought of when they thought of New York. When Joe Buck first arrives in New York City, he strides down the packed sidewalks of Fifth Avenue, literally head and shoulders above everyone else. Midnight Cowboy is, among other things, the story of how the city cuts him down to size. Ratso Rizzo's size, specifically. Throughout this narrative, the would-be hustler keeps getting hustled by his first trick, whom he ends up paying. Would you believe that? I forgot to get to the bank and now it's too late. Listen, I have to take a taxi. I need a few bucks. I hate to ask you, but you're such a doll. By Rizzo, who takes him for a few easy bucks. I think I could have another 10 now. By the bespectacled college student, who engages him for sex and then reveals he's broke. Take my books. Take my books. How much is that thing? Throughout this adventure, Schlesinger repeatedly contrasts Joe's macho fantasies with his miserable reality. He triumphantly rehearses, quitting his dishwashing job. You're due here at 4 o'clock. You know what you can do with them dishes. And if you ain't man enough to do it for yourself, I'd be happy to oblige. But the execution is mealy-mouthed and half-hearted. Four o'clock, four to midnight, that's when you're doing it. Uh, yes, Mr. Driver, sir, I wonder if you could have a, a word with me for a second. What the hell are you doing in that get-up? 
spray him an apron and clean up that crap. He imagines how he'll rough up Rizzo for his con job, but barely touches him when they finally reunite. Where's my money? Here. You put it up there, boy. All right. All right, here. Here, that, that's all I got. Here, that's it. That's all you got? What you got in your socks? Nothing. I, I swear to God, I swear on my mother's eyes. Here, nothing. Here, 64 cents. Go ahead. Come on, I want you to have it. He rehearses his tough talk in the mirror before confronting his last John. I tell you, I got, got a sick kid on my hands. Well, he is. He's sick on you, and I, and I got to get him south quick as I can. I got a sick boy, and I'm going to. I'm going to get him south. You understand me. You understand me, Tony. I'm going to get him south. And ends up bullying the poor, pathetic soul. i got to have $57. I simply don't have it, Joe. i got family, goddammit. You're wasting your time, Joe. There's nothing in here. Get out of my way, please, sir. Get out of my way! No, no, no. Don't let go of that table, please. No, you... Please, sir. No, please. No. 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 Oh, I deserve that. I brought this on myself. I know I did. Joe Buck may not be a native New Yorker, but he's a lot like New York in the Lindsay era, mired in the dissonance between what he fancies himself to be and what he actually is. That's a really tough film. This is Glenn Kenny. He's written books about Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro, as well as the essay for the new 4K release of Taxi Driver. And it's a weird thing because it's a movie that, as time goes on, is tougher mm-hmm. uh, because of the way we perceive it, the way we see it, the way society in New York have changed since then. You know, even with a film like Gone with the Wind and its, you know, happy-go-lucky willful ignorance of institutional racism and all the things about it that are offensive they're offensive in a way that is kind of quaint and taxi driver hits you nowadays when as values have shifted and we're in a kind of a situation where people are insisting on what i think is a mistaken perspective that depiction equals endorsement you know what this depicts is so unrelentingly ugly and uh, eventually full of despair and it just gets tougher taxi driver began in the mind of paul schrader who wrote its screenplay during a dark period in his life newly divorced he was living in his car driving all night and sleeping off days in grimy porno theaters he developed a bleeding gastric ulcer and checked himself into a hospital but he began to recast his dysfunction and self-destruction into a character and a story Here's Schrader, 40 years later. This script uh, began um, in the best possible way, which is it began as as self-therapy. There was a a person who I was afraid of, who I was afraid I was becoming, and that was this taxi driver. And I felt that if I wrote about him, I could distance him from me, and it worked. Robert De Niro stars as Travis Bickle, a restless Vietnam veteran who gets a job as a New York City cabbie, working long nights and observing the casual horrors of the city through his windshield. All the animals come out at night. Whores, skunk pussies, buggers, queens, fairies, dopers, junkies. Sick, venal. It's 
Someday a real rain will come and wash all this scum off the streets. One day, he spots a vision. Betsy, a beautiful blonde working for a political campaign. I first saw her at Palantine campaign headquarters at 63rd and Broadway. She was wearing a white dress. She appeared like an angel out of this filthy mess. She is alone. They cannot touch her. She's initially intrigued, but he drives her away with that ill-chosen movie date. Travis then turns his attention to saving Iris, an underage prostitute, while planning to assassinate Betsy's employer, Senator Charles Palantine. But he loses his nerve and instead murders Iris's pimp and several other men in a bloody whorehouse massacre. Crazy son of a bitch! I'll kill you! The script poured out of Schrader like blood, his first draft completed in 10 days. Yeah, uh, Brian De Palma gave it to me. This, of course, is Martin Scorsese. Brian had the script, gave it to me and said, this is kind of, you should do this. And I hadn't really done Mean Streets yet. I don't remember. Yeah, I think I was doing Mean Streets is what it was because I remember they, no one would take me in any event anyway seriously because I was uh, the independent film that I made in New York, uh, Who's That Knocking at My Door, uh, and uh, Roger Corman, Boshkar Bertha were not taken seriously. So, And so no one took it seriously. And no one took me seriously until they saw a rough cut of Mean Streets. Um, and the producers of the film, the taxi driver, Michael and Julia Phillips, said with a combination of De Niro and me, especially after De Niro won the Oscar for Godfather 2, that they could probably get Taxi Driver made. It was a case of ideal timing of these three men, Scorsese, Schrader, and De Niro, assembling at just the right moment in their lives and careers. Robert De Niro, in fact, already had an idea for a film about a similar character. Well, when I was younger, I had something in mind that was similar, yeah, in some ways. Basically a guy who was uh, isolated, alone, kind of like the Travis character, which I never really fully realized. Uh, but um, when I read it, I, I identified with it, as I think we all did, even though Marty's from the right in the heart of New York, I'm from the heart of New York, not far from each other in, in Manhattan. Uh, we just identify with the character. And there's some of Paul in the way that you played the character, you know? Yeah, I mean, there were things that, even literal stuff kind of like, I think the shoes that you had, boots. the boots I took, your jacket. De Niro also famously drove a cab in New York during pre-production to get comfortable behind the wheel. I had like two weeks, I think, to be ready to shoot. And as soon as I got back, I started driving a cab. Um, I thought I drove for at least like 10 days or something, or maybe the whole, you know, but I drove as much as I could in that period. <laughs> a, yeah, you told me that it was a guy got in the car and he noticed that it was your name on the driver's license. And you said, my God, you just won an Oscar. Is it that hard to get a job as an actor? <laughs> 
Well, the thing about this movie is that every that Paul Schrader and Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro are each in their own way Travis Bickle. And this contributes to the richness of the movie, and it also contributes to the incoherence of the movie. And it's true. Schrader and Scorsese had very different approaches to filmmaking and about how to tell this story. Well, the impact of the writing, how he sets the scenes up, and, and, and uh, uh, Paul has a uh, way of... Uh, it's not very descriptive. It's very spare. And that cleared away the vision that I had for the picture. Um by way of uh, Mean Streets, mm, uh, a lot of the work I loved that I really was an admiration of, Robert Bresson, and uh, oh, a number of others that I felt that uh, it needed a... I immediately saw that um, clearly how it could be made, how I should make it, I should say. It's funny because we talk about realism in this film in terms of the blood, in terms of the verisimilitude, but so much of it is unrealistic in terms of time and movement and how things happen. And I drew every shot, every shot to be to be said. It's all storyboarded completely because we, in a case like that, you when you have a very low budget, you, you know, I, I prefer designing it way way in advance and you know during the day accomplish as many of those uh, images and editing pattern shots, let me put it that way, uh, camera movements and things like that. And always keeping in mind that you hope that there's a good accident or you, you may have to combine two or three shots into one. But meaning it's preparation so you don't go too far over budget where the studio gets, because uh, we're still working at studios and that was Columbia and they didn't really, uh, they weren't supportive of the picture at that time. And the lack of confidence from studio executives was far from the only difficulty Scorsese and his crew encountered when they went to shoot Taxi Driver in Manhattan in the summer of 1975. The shoot was hard. The shoot was hard. And in a couple of places, naturally, we shot in places that were very difficult where, you know, we weren't, we weren't uh, accepted. Uh, we weren't welcomed, I should say. <laughs> the city was all but bankrupt. It was dirty. It was filthy. And there were very specific reasons for the city's state of decay. In the early 70s, New York gets into serious fiscal difficulties as the economy declines, as people move out, as the tax base shrinks. But the city still has a very extensive set of spending commitments. And over the course of 1975, New York almost goes bankrupt. The city is shut out of the credit markets and absent that isn't able to continue to function. The city's leaders go to the federal government to ask for aid. And for much of the year, President Gerald Ford says he isn't going to give any federal aid to the city. The Daily News, which was at the time the tabloid nonpareil, came up with the exciting uh, and pertinent and relevant, more or less, headline, Ford to City Drop Dead. And that was 1975, when they were shooting Taxi Driver. Here's Mayor Abraham Beam making his case in Washington, D.C. The state has done all it can. The city has done and is committed to do in the months ahead more of what we've done. And if the federal government does not help us, I think it will find the problem afterwards, which it would have to help us with, 
much more serious. Right. So the summer of 75 is the summer when New York is is teetering on bankruptcy for most of the year. The city that summer is engulfed by wildcat strikes over protests and, and, and protests over layoffs of thousands of city workers. How has the financial crisis affected your work? My work? I lost all faith in the job. How, how can you work, you know, and you don't know whether you're going to get paid on Friday? Two weeks ago, they stopped the checks. They wouldn't pay some of the men. We were fortunate. We got our checks cashed at 9 o'clock. But the guys that were cashing them in the afternoon, they didn't know whether they'd have money to pay the bonds. The strike of sanitation workers, and there's literally piles of garbage rising in the streets around the city. People are setting the garbage on fire because there's nothing else to do with it. Police officers at one point angry about layoffs, storm across the Brooklyn Bridge, puncturing the tires of motorists. If they disband the precinct, uh, we will be a sort of demilitarized zone. We will be at the mercy of uh, every rapist, robber, and mugger who will come into this area because they know that the time for the police to come from other precincts uh, will give them enough time to do their dirty work and get away before the response time. This is the time when, the, again, the police officers produced the Welcome to Fear City flyer, which depicted this grinning skull on the front, and it says, Welcome to Fear City, and on the inside, it, it kind of lists in a a very racialized way, all the terrible things that might happen to tourists who are coming to New York. And the plan of the police unions was to distribute this flyer at the airports, especially at Kennedy. They were stopped from doing so by an injunction, but they did drive around the city with sound trucks, blaring messages about, you know, when was the last time you or someone you know was mugged. To some extent, Scorsese was unfazed, focused on his movie, and by that point, used to the chaos of New York. As far as I was concerned, it was normal. I was surprised when that uh, the newspaper headline, Ford to City, Drop Dead or whatever. And so I said, what are they doing? I had no idea. I remember people telling me, Marty, didn't you realize? I think it was because uh, we were doing that thing, Vinyl and Mick Jagger, we were talking. He said, Marty, didn't you realize that when you're standing on a corner, though, and behind you there's a wall of trash that hasn't been picked up? that something was amiss. And I said, no, it was just a New York um, garbage strike. Remember under Lindsay, there were a couple of garbage strikes. You know, they'll get it done, I guess. And we just, no, no, it was all there. And that's what you see in the movie. So there was a very strong sense of both the, the city veering out of control and the public sector being unable to stop it. Arson is rising around the city. This, the, the homicide rate is actually climbing at this point. And yet, despite these evident social problems, the city is actually laying people off, closing firehouses. So I think that sense of the, the city government being powerless and, in fact, in retrenchment, despite intense social need, that's kind of the backdrop to what's happening when taxi driver is made. I mean, you could taste it in the air. There was a a sense of desperation. Yeah, there was a sense of violence in the air, too. But, you know, hot summers, like, do the right thing, you know, take a look at that. And when in the heat, everybody's outside, everybody, they have no air conditioning, getting on each other's nerves, uh, you know, the whole city was like that. Whatever it is, you should clean up this city here, because this city here is like an open sewer, you know? It's full of filth and scum. And sometimes I can hardly take it. Whatever ever becomes the president should just... Really clean it up. 
You know what I mean? Sometimes I go out and I smell it. I get headaches. It's so bad, you know? And they just, like, they just never go away, you know? It's like, I think that the president should just clean up this whole mess here. He should just flush it right down the fucking toilet. And it also at the same time, it was wonderful. That was also the time uh, the mayor's office had a campaign. New York is a summer festival. Now, come on. Go, you just punch that up in your internet, and you'll see the actual, in all the bus kiosks and everywhere, it was all over the place. New York is a summer festival. Yay. So, yeah, it's a summer festival. It was kind of enjoyable. In May, the spring was absolutely beautiful before we started shooting. That was a very happy time. Downtown, things were starting to hop. You know, 75 was the year that Patti Smith put out Horses. Television and uh, Blondie and the Ramones and a little later Talking Heads were all playing CBGB. So the cultural renaissance that came about as a result of things being really cheap and uh, available, venues being available if you were willing to sort of, you know, take your life in your own hands to play them, uh, that was just beginning to start. But it hadn't started yet. I do think it's important to recognize that well, just in some ways, the whole vision of crisis and the vision in Taxi Driver reflects especially the sensibility of a particular part of New York. It's a, a sense of panic that was probably most acute among middle class white people in the city. And it's not actually the documentary or full truth of the city during these years. And so I think, you know, all of the the emphasis on crime, on uncontrollability, it is true that there was actually a rising murder rate during these years. So it's not that it's totally false, but also I think the high level of anxiety about it is not just about the actual conditions, but about the politics around them. When Taxi Driver was released in early 1976, it was a surprise hit, and it played especially well in New York City. In fact, Scorsese was shocked and a little appalled when the film's opening night late show audience began cheering and applauding Bickle's rampage at the end of the movie. But he shouldn't have been shocked. The New Yorkers who turned out for Taxi Driver in the spring of 1976 saw on that screen the pressure cooker they'd been living in for months. They saw a garbage-strewn no-man's land of misery, neglect, and lawlessness. And at the end of the movie, when Scorsese opened the release valve, it's not surprising they applauded. Frankly, it's surprising they didn't riot. But Taxi Driver in particular takes on very directly the whole fun city image. And it's a part of the effect of the movie and of the other films of that period, Panic in Needle Park is another one that comes to mind. But they, a part of the drama of those is that they are such a dramatic counterpoint to what the city government is trying to say about itself and the efforts just a few years earlier to bring people into the city and you know, to encourage tourism and encourage a middle class and corporate headquarters and just all of that. So the movies, yeah, they take on a, a life of their own. It was scary to come to New York City back in the 70s. This is Glenn Kenny again. And I didn't do it that often. I only started coming around 77 when I was about 18, and I was of drinking age, and I could go to CBGB. But even then, it was, you know, going to Irving Plaza, going through uh, Union Square. There was a lot of potential for uh, getting, you know, 
roughed up, especially if you were kind of, a, you know, you could still be from Jersey and still be a, a hayseed, and I definitely was that. But, you know, it, it became more attractive in that respect. But as the decade continued, the powers that be attempted to sell the city in a more conventional way. During the summer of 1977, the summer of the notorious citywide blackout, the summer in which much of the city was paralyzed in fear of the Son of Sam killer, the State Commerce Department launched NYC's first official marketing campaign. The I Heart New York campaign targeted tourists and conventions, reframing gritty Gotham as a fun and vibrant place to visit. It also reminded corporations that New York is the center of the world and assured them that the city would welcome them with open arms. This was not an unprecedented approach, as Kim Phillips Fine notes. Right. Lindsay starts to talk about the city as a white-collar mecca. So he starts to try to recruit corporate headquarters to stay in New York. He starts to talk about wanting to bring tourists to the city. He describes it famously as fun city and wants to, to reclaim it as a, a space of pleasure, entertainment, leisure. And actually, a lot of the things that we associate with you know, the, the later marketing campaigns of the city, I think, in some ways, really go back to Lindsay at that time. But as the city moved from the 70s to the 80s, the message landed. Visitor numbers went up. Empty high-rises began to fill. And suddenly, the same media that had spent the past several years telling horror yarns about New York had a new narrative, a comeback story. And it's interesting because, you know, during this whole period, Broadway shows still ran. There, were, there was amusement for the rich, but there was a sort of a segregation. You know, the taxi driver dropped, you off, dropped the rich people off at St. Regis and then he left. The upper classes, the moneyed people kind of had this practice of sort of running for their lives, so to speak, getting from one place to the other. There were there were segments of the city where they were safe, but you know, to get from point A to point B, that was the challenge, and that was what made New York less than starting to make New York less than desirable for the moneyed interests. But uh, you know, subsequent administrations, particularly with uh, Ed Koch and Rudolph Giuliani, were uh, crucial in transforming New York to. Uh, an even more severely segregated and largely dominated by the rich uh, place that it is today, Manhattan specifically. The city's public-facing transition from crime-ridden hellscape to tourist destination was not only about economics, nor was the initial response to the fiscal crisis all the way back in 1975. Part of Ford's justification for not helping the city is that it is a morally problematic space. It's not just that it has this generous welfare state. It's not just that it has this extensive set of public hospitals and a, a city university that is at that point tuition free. It's also that New York is a space of licentiousness and sin. It's the center of the gay rights movement. This is only a few years after Stonewall. It's also a, a kind of early center of second wave feminism, home to one of the early abortion speakouts and to a, a rising wave of you know, activism challenging traditional gender and family roles. So New York is seen as a, a space that the federal government shouldn't be supporting. And that's part of what justifies the denial of aid. That same way of thinking would rear its head again in the 1990s when Republican Mayor Rudolph Giuliani 
began systematically dismantling what he deemed the least reputable spaces in Times Square. The adult bookshops, the X-rated theaters, the peep shows. In Giuliani's politics, you know, it's partly about making the city safe for business and for a middle class or elite population again. So there's a a kind of a, a vision of political economy. But underneath that and giving it a lot of its energy is a a sort of a moral furor. One of the many things that Giuliani did with the Disneyfication of Times Square, you know, he really clamped down on all the transsexual bars uh, in that area, padlocked them all on the night that the Lion King opened in a uh, gesture that was both symbolic and very, uh, you know, real in terms of what it portended and sort of drove the trans trans community underground for a good 10, 15 years. In the conservative politics of the 70s, the welfare state was seen as responding in part to the pressure of these organizations and this politics. And I think Giuliani's style is partly, you know, it's, it's animated by this sense of things having gotten out of control, you know, in very specific ways. Times Square as it exists today bears little more than a passing resemblance to the clearinghouse of sin and squalor seen in these films. The year Taxi Driver was released, local business interests formed the 42nd Street Redevelopment Association, which aimed to clean up and shine up the deuce. A young developer named Donald Trump took advantage of loopholes and property tax breaks to renovate the Commodore Hotel. The grindhouses of Midnight Cowboy and Taxi Driver were gut-renovated or raised and rebuilt altogether into ritzy Broadway houses. And the mayors that followed Abe Beam would, put simply, do what Travis asked Senator Palantine to do. They cleaned up the scum and the filth and flushed it out. Giuliani's Disneyfication of the district replaced the arcades and peep shows with overpriced multiplexes, chain restaurants, and, yes, a Disney store. Great pains were taken to remove local vendors and attract big brands. And in many ways, Times Square became a brand itself, as much as Disneyland, Rodeo Drive, or the Las Vegas Strip. And in many ways, the city around the district followed suit. These days, it's easy to get nostalgic about Times Square's former self, to look back on a time when those blocks had personality and energy, when they catered to weirdos and eccentrics instead of tourists and businessmen. But this nostalgia is complicated. If you you scratch the surface, there very quickly is a lot of negative feeling about that period. I would say that we are not really in that much danger of romanticizing it exactly because the negative associations are actually quite powerful and come quickly to the surface. And yes, I think it was actually very difficult in New York in those years in many ways. So yes, the surfaces have changed. But here's the real question, maybe even the central question. Is the soul of the city still the same? The weird thing is, though, if you come in from Hoboken and you get out of Port Authority at 1.32 in the morning on a Saturday night in the safe, sanitized Times Square, it's not that safe and sanitized anymore. It's actually the line is 8th Avenue. There, it's literally like if you go from the New York Times building across the street to the Port Authority, it's like step, you're like crossing a demilitarized zone there. 
So it's an, it's an illusion, really. It's an illusion. You know, there are streetwalkers. They're there. It's it's not it's not gone. It's not gone. That's that's the thing. It's not so much that we're going to romanticize the past as we're kind of like simultaneously media hype blinded and willfully blind to what's still there, which is poverty, degradation, deprivation, and you know, income inequality and and class disparity. It's all there. A lifelong New Yorker like Martin Scorsese, now approaching his 79th birthday, takes it all in stride. I, I don't know. It's not my New York. But now, 40, 50 years later, you know, I tended to become aware and um, sometimes a little late, unfortunately, because things change so fast in New York now that areas are completely different, you know. But uh, I tend to, yeah, I... I've become aware of lots of different aspects of the city, different cultural aspects, I should say, architectural, that sort of thing. And I'm still obsessed with it. I don't necessarily like all the changes, but that's the city. The city will constantly change. It will never, it was like ancient Rome. They said ancient Rome will be wonderful when it's completed being built. But it's constantly being built. So, you know. So I, I want to go ahead and bring in my co-host, Mike Cole, because I don't know, Mike, we're, we're talking later in the episode than we usually do, uh, but I kind of feel like this is in many ways the question we've maybe been working up to the whole season, or at least these these series of questions. The main one being this this one that is asked so often that now it's almost become a cliche you know, is New York City dead? And it's especially a question to ask, you know, at this weird moment in our uh, in our lives coming out of this really grim period. So I don't know, where, where do you land on that stuff? I mean, I think that gets down to the question of what you value. Right. If you need David Byrne to be 25 years old and playing at CBGB for mm -hmm. New York to be cool, then New York is dead. Right. And is never coming back. David Byrne is on Broadway right now. So I think that that, you know, the it really comes down to a question of what you think is cool and what you value and why you moved there in the first place or continue to live there. So why do you do that? Why do I do that? That was not a rhetorical. Question. Oh, shit. Sorry. Um. I do that because there is a life here, there is culture here, there is work here, there is pleasure here that does not exist in the place where you can put the groceries in the back of the car, which I know because that's the only other place that I've lived was a place where you could do that. Then is New York dead? I guess not, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess that is sort of, you know, the question of, what exactly do you think is cool? Like, what do you value? When we watch these things, mm -hmm. you know, what is it that we look at and we say like, oh, I wish I could have participated in that? You know, there there is no question that the version of New York that exists right now is hyper-suburbanized, hyper-gentrified. The income gap is wider than it's been since the Gilded Age. And that the kind of experience that you can have as a New Yorker with no money 
is not what it was if you were here in the 70s or the 1980s. Like, I don't think these are controversial ideas. But I don't think they necessarily tell the whole story either. I think that what is limited is not the experience necessarily, but the neighborhood. Sure. At one point, you know, it was possible to be, you know, Allen Ginsberg and, and, you know, be able to be a poet and live in the sort of Columbia University neighborhood, <laughs> right? And and that's right. no longer possible. But then after that, you could, you know, live in the West Village and you could have, you know, the sort mm-hmm. of hippie apartment, you know, in the West Village and around NYU. And then after that, it became Soho. And then we did a whole episode about, you know, the, the no-wave culture right. in the Lower East Side in the East Village. You know, and and when, uh, you know, when I first went there, it was Bushwick, you know, and now Bushwick Mm -hmm. is not really, you know, nearly as affordable as it was in, you know, 2001, 2002. Right. Right. But these experiences, I I would argue, are still available. Mm -hmm. You know, when all of the artists get pushed to Queens, it's a little more complicated to kind of find the scene. It's not the sort of thing that is accessible in a way that makes it available to media or to, frankly, a lot of sort of people who are outside of the culture. But that doesn't mean that the culture doesn't exist. You know, so as long as these experiences are available, you know, New York makes you work for them. Sure. Right. But but as long as those experiences are available, then to me, New York is what it has always been. Is this just a generational thing and every generation of New Yorkers is going to think that they got here too late and that the last generation was the last good one or however it might shake out? I mean, sure. I think that's a, there's a human quality to that. But but I also think, you know, you have made a really strong case both in the book and over this this series of podcasts that, you know, money makes decisions Mm-hmm. In New York City. Absolutely. And it almost always makes the wrong decision. <laughs> yes. And I think you're right. And and yet, yeah. the human spirit is such that these things continue to get re- continue to be recreated and continue to exist. And and New York pulses with them and is alive with them constantly. You know what the thing that I think about is? The thing that I always think about is Santa Gold. Have you ever heard of Santa Gold? No. He's a musician named Santa Gold. Okay. And there was a time when you could not go out in the Lower East Side without running into Santa Gold playing somewhere or, you know, her music was playing, you know, in the bar or Mm -hmm. she was just all over the place all the time and everybody was talking about her. And it was a scene, man. You know, like it was possible to sort of be there and like feel all the feelings of this burgeoning sort of movement, Mm -hmm. you know. And when I read about Jack Kerouac going to see jazz, you know, when I read about people going to, you know, the tunnel and going to see hip hop artists, that is exactly what I experienced going to see Santa Gold in the Lower East Side. The feelings were the same. The energy was the same. Being in this little place with this person who everybody knew was going to be a superstar. Yeah. And and right now in Brooklyn, there is somebody listening to some kid fucking mumble rap. And I would hate every minute of it. But those feelings are just as real for that kid as Santa Gold was for me and yeah. Charlie Parker was for Allen Ginsberg. 
the, this question, as I said, has been on my mind a lot. And so uh, when I talked to Kim Phillips Fine a couple of weeks ago, I posed it to her. And this is what she had to say on the matter. I actually, I don't think that the the allure of that time to, from the point of view of the present is really so problematic. I think another theme of the period is the cultural explosion of the 70s and early 1980s, the, the emergence of hip hop, of punk, the downtown art scene. And I think that there, I think part of what people are drawn to in remembering that time isn't just, you know, the the, the sleazy fun of it or the the sense of, you know, the the material underpinnings of that of the cheap rent. I think it, you know those things I think are compelling, but I don't think they're really why things books like, for example, the Patty Smith Just Kids, why that attracted such a readership. I think it really is that there was a, a sense at that moment of an old order and an old way of organizing social life that had fallen apart and had opened up. And in that collapse, there was a certain kind of space for something new. And I think that part of the draw of that moment today is a sense of the pressing problems of our current city and of New York now, and a sense of confusion about what the way forward might be. And so I think this it's a kind of a mirror image of our own. It both holds a different set of values and ones that actually might be helpful to remember today. And also just the example, this is another time, another moment when it seemed as though the world was falling apart and people had to struggle among, you know, through art, among other things, to put it back together and to make meaning of it again. Early in the process of researching the book that spawned this podcast, I found this quote in Harper's. And it goes, quote, New York is notoriously the largest and least loved of our great cities. Why should it be loved as a city? It is never the same city for a dozen years altogether. A man born 40 years ago finds nothing, absolutely nothing, of the New York he knew. If he chances to stumble upon a few old houses not yet leveled, he is fortunate. But the landmarks, the objects which marked the city to him as a city are gone. End quote. Those lines were published in 1856. New York has been changing and mutating and casting off its former self for as long as it's been a place worth living in. You know, that's part of what makes it worth living in. It's literally in the name, New York City. To live in New York is to live at peace with living in motion, to surrender yourself to regeneration. But it's not always easy to let go of that past. So if you spend enough time thinking about New York City, its past and its present, you have to surrender to certain contradictions about living in New York and loving it. And thinking and talking about Times Square captures a lot of those contradictions. Because New Yorkers hold Times Square in such contempt now as this soul-sucking space drained of all of its personality and flavor. Not like the old days. And many of us who were born here or moved here after those days find ourselves thinking of the city the same way. And that's why the New York movies of the 60s and 70s and beyond seem so magical to us. Because when the city changes this much, movies like these become anthropological objects, fossils of a forgotten time capturing the city in celluloid 
instead of amber. Yet film is a two-dimensional medium, and we can't let these images flatten our understanding of the city's history and its evolution. We can better comprehend the power of Taxi Driver and Midnight Cowboy by contextualizing them in the desperation of the city at that time. And we can more thoroughly appreciate how their directors sensed what was in the air and captured it on film. But they're an entry point and not the last word. They're drama, not documentary. They capture the changes of the city, but rarely the how or the why. This podcast began, like many others, in the early days of the pandemic, when this city was the North American epicenter for COVID-19. And from those darkest days on, we've been told that New York will survive, New Yorkers are tough, New York can take whatever they throw at us. As they said to us during the fiscal crisis, during the dark days of the AIDS crisis, after 9-11. And as New York has attempted to pull itself out of that crisis, we've seen history begin to repeat itself. We've heard about people and businesses fleeing the city in record numbers. We've watched New York's mayor and its police department battle over strategies and oversight. We've heard about a crime wave that could return New York to its most lawless era. And on and on and on. Grill Marcus writes, we make the oldest stories new when we succeed, and we are trapped by the old stories when we fail. The word history comes from the ancient Greek word historia, which means inquiry, the act of seeking knowledge. So we examine and dramatize and analyze this history, not just to point and gawk or to wax nostalgic. It's to discover what it is about our human story, about our New York story that we admire and want to emulate or that we abhor and want to avoid. And so in these films, in their sounds and images, we're glimpsing not only a past that's long gone, but a future that's not yet written. From Fun City, I'm Jason Bailey. Fun City Cinema is inspired by the book Fun City Cinema, New York City and the Movies That Made It, out now from Abrams Books and available wherever books and ebooks are sold. Fun City Cinema is written and hosted by my friend Jason Bailey. And produced and co-hosted by my friend Mike Hull. Special thanks to today's guests. Adam Hollander is the cinematographer of many great New York movies, including Midnight Cowboy, The Panic in Needle Park, Street Smart, Fresh, and Smoke. Glenn Kenny is a contributor to the New York Times and RogerEbert.com. He is also the author of the excellent book, Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas, as well as the Robert De Niro volume of the Anatomy of an Actor series. His essay on Taxi Driver is included in the new Columbia Classics 4K Ultra HD collection, volume two. Kim Phillips Fine is a professor at New York University's Gallatin School of Individualized Study and the History Department of the College of Arts and Sciences at NYU. 
and her book, Fear City, New York's Fiscal Crisis and the Rise of Austerity Politics, is an absolute must-read. And Martin Scorsese is a world-renowned producer and director. His most recent release is Netflix's limited documentary series, Pretend It's a City. Additional special thanks to the Alamo Drafthouse, which hosted several Fun City Cinema screenings in September, where we recorded the Adam Hollander and Glenn Kenny interviews. Our website is www.funcitycinema.com. You can listen to episodes, read show notes, and order your copy of Jason's book. And if you'd like to see some of the clippings and images referenced on today's episode, you can follow us on Instagram at Fun City Cinema. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at BrainwashedLib and Jason is at Jason-Bailey. And if you like this podcast and would like to hear more of them, you can support it on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash funcitycinema. You'll also get additional writings and bonus episodes, including the full Martin Scorsese interview from today's show. Or you can rate and review the podcast on your favorite app. It really helps. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. million stories in the naked city. This has been one of them. Hoping to get a look at what? Uh, Statue of Liberty. It's up in Central Park taking a leak. If you hurry up, you'll catch the supper show.